well-known fact. Neil, Neil Diamond wrote that for the cherry trees. So. Yeah, he was out there abrogating yesterday and was inspired to do that. So. Don't you love that word? It's a good word. Felix Bunnell, our resident historian, is here with uh, an update on the cherry trees. The activists wanted a stay of execution, and apparently they got their wish. This is crazy. Was it only two days ago we talked about this? Seems like yes. months ago. So you'll recall those eight cherry trees were planted back in 1980. They were set to be chopped down as early as Monday of this week. That block of Pike Street, right by the Pike Place Market between 1st and 2nd Avenue, it's being rebuilt as part of a corridor between downtown and Capitol Hill. There's some confusion as to what that exactly means. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, I had pestered the staff at Waterfront Seattle about the trees a few times yesterday. They're the part of the city government overseeing development of the waterfront and the area around Pike Place Market. Their official name is the Office of Waterfront and Civic Projects. Mm-hmm. Now, an email response from a spokesperson came in the early afternoon with news of the pause of the Urban Lumberjack Project. Now, this is a quote. To, quote, listen to the perspective of community members and to fully consider their concerns, unquote. So in response to a question, they also confirmed that Mayor Harrell was involved in the decision. This went right to the top, Dave. Wow. Now, this is, you might recall, after Waterfront Seattle had said Monday there had already been a public process about the trees. So I'm not sure what's going on. Um, now, you can imagine this, that uh, Ruth Danner, she's president of Save the Market Entrance. That's a group who's been trying to save those trees for several years. And who asked on our airwaves Monday for Mayor Harrell to grant a stay of execution. Well, she was feeling pretty good. I'm happy that the trees are still standing and we're going to have an opportunity to consider other alternatives to the chainsaw and the chipper. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Ruth told me her group has never felt quite listened to by Waterfront Seattle. She says members of Save the Market Entrance have given feedback about the value of keeping the trees. The fact similar trees are much older at UW and on the National Mall. But they never really gotten any response. She told me Save the Market Entrance put ribbons on the trees and hung paper hearts with messages about calling City Hall. And though the trees are across First Avenue for one of the most successful preservation campaigns in the city's history, Ruth Danner says her group isn't very good at organizing big public campaigns or some kind of march or rally. But I would not put it past the public to sort of organically come together at some point just because I think we've had a lot of response from other groups. But there really is an upswelling. It's a little like when they tried to bring the wrecking ball to Pike Place Market. You just don't do that stuff without getting people in Seattle riled up. Not, we're not going to have people chaining themselves to cherry trees, are we? I don't think they need to, okay. based on what happened yesterday. Um, so I went down to First and Pike myself yesterday afternoon to get a look at the trees and the paper hearts and see if any Seattle people were, in fact, riled up, or at least if they had any opinions about cherry trees we could play on the radio. Now, this is Bethany and then Noela, who both live in the University District. I think that they shouldn't be removed. They're pretty, so it's good for tourism. Really? They were planning to take them down. What, what did you say, ma'am? Oh, uh, I, I will not take them down. I will keep them. They're decoration and they're beautiful, actually. I also talked to a guy named Stephen from the Central District. You're in favor of keeping the cherry trees? I'm in favor of keeping the cherry trees because I love cherry blossoms. Every year I go down to University of Washington, which is coming up pretty soon here in April, I think, when they start blossoming. It's the most beautiful thing you could ever see. Please, please, please don't tear them down, uh, Mr. Mayor. <laughs> and that was the unanimous opinion of all three or four people I talked to in my non-scientific poll mm-hmm. yesterday to rushing down there in rush hour. Now, I mentioned a moment ago there's some confusion as to what the new design of that Pike Street block will look like. I'm still not sure myself. Um, several people were correcting me via social media and saying that the bike lanes... That, are, that they said they were going to t- t- take the trees down to put bike lanes in. That's apparently not true. They're actually, they want to turn that into one of those curbless streets, like Bell between oh, first yeah. and second, where it's kind yeah. of this, where the tree, the cars and the people and the bikes all kind of mixed together. 
Like a, a really wide sidewalk for cars. Yeah, and it's but also it is more pedestrian friendly. It gives sort of a it's a traffic calming well, the, effect. Well, you know. Pike Street, uh, Pike Place itself in front of the market with those cobblestones. And, cobblestones. Yeah, and that's the best part of being there is the, weaving your way while well, traffic's behind you. And that stuff. only works because the the cars through some you know invisible agreement agree to roll along at like two miles an hour. And it works. There's yeah. urbanists have talked about that for decades. That interplay between people and pedestrians at Pike Place Market. Anyway. Ruth Danner, well, you know, she's not really worried about those kind of specifics. You know, the city can figure out whatever they want to do with the bikes and the cars, and I know that they can do it. I I have great faith in their ability to make good plans, but they have to consider the Japanese cherry trees in making that plan. They ought to be able to figure out how to fit all the rest of us in and around the trees. Is that too much to ask? No. <laughs> so there's still there's a couple kind of bizarre twists to the story. There's lots going on behind the scenes. Um, I had actually checked in with Ruth on Monday. She she had noticed they'd put framework like wooden framework around the trees on mm-hmm. Monday. So this decision has probably been in the works for at least a couple of days. You don't usually put mm-hmm. frames around trees you're going to yeah. cut down with a chainsaw. No, you protect them. Yeah. And I reached out to the mayor's office to Councilmember Andrew Lewis, whose district includes the cherry trees. Um, both Mayor Harrell and Councilmember Lewis and Waterfront Seattle all surprisingly turned down interview requests about this. Hmm. I don't know why they won't talk to me, Dave. They're afraid of you. Oh, no, they're not afraid. I did learn that Councilmember Lewis will convene a meeting first thing this morning with uh, Save the Market Entrance and Waterfront Seattle, their staffing consultants from that Office of Waterfront and Civic Projects. So there's a big oh. meeting happening this morning. That who knows what's going to happen after that. Um, if everyone had agreed to be interviewed or anyone had agreed to be interviewed... I would have, would have asked how the general public can be involved in this process, not just these particular groups who have an interest. Yeah. It seems like people still so care about was this. this. Usually the Seattle process is, is full of members of the general public. You're saying this process did not have public testimony? I, well, no, the Waterfront Seattle claimed there was years of process years about the trees, process. but then all of a sudden, when, the, when it came down to that, people realized what they were going to lose if the trees were coming down. Now, there's one last weird thing, awkward coincidence. Yesterday, Mayor Harrell and Council Member um, Dan Strauss announced a project to improve tree canopy and preserve the tree canopy, oh, right. yeah, a big that. executive order and proposed legislation. Wouldn't that have been a great split-screen moment to have kind of a press conference with Mayor Harrell and Councilmember Strauss on the left side? Then on the right, you know, the steel gets the steel chainsaw gets fired up, and yeah. they're cutting down the trees. And all. It would have been a brilliant split-screen well, screen moment. that's what made this so strange, because, yeah, the, they announced the tree canopy thing, and the next day we hear about the, you come in and talk about the cherry trees being <laughs> cut down. It just didn't, didn't make sense. One, yeah. one arborist didn't know what the other arborist was doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. nicely put. It's a great Seattle moment. I mean, that's why, you know, if you like local radio and like local stories, you've come yeah. to the right place. Good. Well, just don't go chanting yourself to a cherry tree, okay? I don't because... think I need to. I think that's okay. I think we're past that now. We are. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Tune in next week. You yeah. can spit cherry pits at them as they come <laughs> well, with their bulldozers. Well, wait, no. We don't know if they're female or male cherry trees. The male cherry trees don't produce any cherries. They uh, yeah, these are ornamental, and they're, they're, they have at least several decades of life left in them, according to tree local famous tree guy Arthur Lee Jacobson. There's trees have a lot of life left in them. I think they should start planting the female cherry trees so we can snack on some cherries as we're walking downtown. <laughs> there you go. I mean, they have the chocolate-covered ones at the market, <laughs> which are good. Delicious. Could you breed a chocolate-covered cherry that just I'll, grows naturally? I'll, have, I'll yeah. reach out Let's, to Mayor Harold's office and see if there's any way they can, can ignore, my, that, ignore off, that question, too. <laughs> I mean, if you could save the gargoyles, you can save it the It didn't tree. save the gargoyles. Oh, right, you Stop rubbing it in. <laughs> 647 Seattle's Morning News. Let's go to Ukraine update. We'll go to the United Nations now in New York and CBS News United Nations correspondent Pam Falk. So the U.N. Secretary General's in Kiev. I also understand that Russia is about to take over the presidency of the U.N. Security Council as part of the regular rotation. What is that going to do? 
Well, uh, what that will do is make sure that their arguments about uh, they were wronged in Ukraine and they didn't start the war and not that they call it a war, the special operation. And um, and then, of course, they probably will bring up more about the uh, the the Nord Stream pipeline because there is new news about that, about intelligence uh, that's still unconfirmed about who actually caused the disruptions to the pipeline that runs between Western Europe and Russia. They've already run, Dave, uh, Security Council meetings on that. What happens with the presidency of the Security Council? is that uh, the the president, every month it changes in alphabetical order in a usual rotation, the president gets to set the agenda. So uh, you're going to see a lot of pro-Russian um, and some of it disinformation at the Security Council, and that's what the, the U.N. has been dealing with. It's why, by the way, most of the big meetings, like the last... Uh, big uh, uh, special session of the General Assembly is taking place in the GA is that Russia doesn't have a veto. Pam, I, I've never heard of this war strategy before. Ukraine set up a hotline for Russian soldiers to surrender. How does that work? Yeah, it's really amazing, Colleen. It's um, what they realized is a lot of Russians, uh, young men, don't want to fight in this war. And in addition to using this mercenary group, uh, the paramilitary company, the Wagner Group, uh, the Russians have to, because the war is so hot, uh, just send young soldiers out to it without any training and a lot without equipment. So uh, the Ukrainians set up a hotline where Russians can call. And it went through um, some they've they released some of the transcripts and it's really amazing. I mean, people saying, well, um, you won't photograph this. How do I get there? Do I put up my hands when I surrender? I surrender to Ukrainian authorities and then um, am I in jail or am I released? And um, uh, the Ukrainians uh, basically reassuring them, no, we're welcoming you, we understand, and they're picking off a lot of Russian soldiers uh, from the military, and that's because this, if you look at not Crimea, that's a separate issue about um, when the Russians took it in 2014. But if you look at the Donbass area, which is where the fighting is going on and the Russians occupied in 2014, they before the war, I mean, it's a border. It's almost like a border state. And so there was a lot of intermixing of Russians and Ukrainians, marriage, uh, relationships, work. And so they don't want to fight each other. I mean, this is really a a tragic situation, and certainly that, in addition to the fact that Associated Press got 2,000 hours of of, um, recordings, secret recordings that the Ukrainians took of Russian soldiers calling home, and that's where the hotline was generated, the idea of the hotline, because they got these soldiers calling home saying, I just blew up a Ukrainian soldier and mom, it looked just like me. Oh, wow. He looked just like me. I know, it's really heart-wrenching. Um, to to hear what the young Russian soldiers are saying. Um, and what are the casualties, Pam? We, 
What, what well, are the, I, I mean, I've heard these stunning casualty numbers about uh, the number of Russian soldiers who have died. What, what is the the accepted number? Do you know? I, I, I've seen so many different ones. I, I, I hesitate to, to say how many, um, but it's in the tens of thousands on both sides. And there is now talk of Zelensky himself launching this spring offensive, which, according to I was just reading the, the Kiev Post this morning, a spring offensive using NATO trained troops and leopard tanks. Is this real? Yes. Yes, that's absolutely real. The tanks um, that are coming from Poland and um, some from Germany have arrived. They have trained uh, the Ukrainian team. Um, there are there is some training of the Ukrainians even on um, F um, sixteen fighters and fifteen fighters. And uh, so we'll see if any of those are provided. At this point, they're not. But on the Abrams tanks, uh, they're coming. Uh, but on the left Leopard tanks, they're already there. And um, they that was because the um, NATO countries did um, uh, and did train the Ukrainians in it. So that's that's one. Now, the downside of this is Bakhmut, where the fighting is going on right now, and you're hearing very different things. Um, the NATO chief, Jens Stoltenberg, just said this morning that he expects Bakhmut to have to, the Ukrainians to have to surrender in Bakhmut. Um, within days. Um, now, he usually knows, but the Ukrainians are, are just fiercely fighting for their existence there. So there will be battlefield wins and losses, but the Ukrainians are gaining steam, and it's it's really, um, it's, it's, a, it's almost classic that they are fighting for their existence, and so they're just unbelievably motivated to defend their country. So um, you, you, it, it's just um, it's pretty tragic about what's going on, which is why um, the further effect of the war, which is, of course, that Ukraine and Russia, um, Dave and Colleen, are uh, were always considered the breadbaskets of the world, and not for the U.S., but for the rest of the world, which is why when all of these, at the beginning of the war last year, when all of the grain was stuck in silos and boats because the Russians had blockaded the Black Sea ports, uh, when this agreement between Russia and Ukraine, which is really amazing in the middle of a war that the UN negotiated and Turkey alongside, um, when when that was opened, uh, the price of food went down. It contributed to the lowering of global food costs and offered relief to people who are paying a very high price for the war around the world, um, the consumer price index, the food price index fell 20% because of it. So um, this is something that has to keep going, and the deadline is March 18th, and that's why the, the Secretary General took a surprise trip yesterday and is already leaving Ukraine. Pam Falk, U.N. correspondent, CBS News. Pam, thank you very much. Absolutely. Good talking, folks. Now we take you to the state legislature. We have updates on gun bills and the police pursuit bill. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. First of all, the gun safety issue, Matt, what did they pass? 
Well, good morning, Dave. Late night for the House members. Uh, late last night, they finally passed after hours of debate a gun safety measure, as it's being called, where they basically requiring uh, new purchasers of firearms that they have to take a safety class, among us, other things. It passed fifty-two to forty-four, with two people excused. So it's a very it was a tight vote, um, but. You know, again, this is how uh, this is how the sausage is being made in 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 Wash in down in Olympia. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. And uh, Republican represent. There's a lot of debate. Let's just put it that way. It was hard to find some key moments in this debate because it went on for so long. But here's Republican Represent Jim Walsh. Madam Speaker, Article One, Section 24 of the Washington State Constitution states plainly that the right to keep and bear firearms shall not be impaired. I mean, that basically underlines the Republican position on anything that deals with guns. Uh, on the Democrat side, uh, Democratic Representative Tana Sen, actually, she voted, she wanted Democrats to vote no on this bill. Not only does it gut the bill, but a 10-day waiting period is very popular, even across the aisle and even across my dining room table, even when my father-in-law is in town. So there was a lot of that kind of rhetoric that was going on here. And I should point out why this is so important, why it happened, and why they went late night. Today is a very big day down in Olympia. It's a it's a cutoff day, meaning that the, the bills where if it started in the House or the Senate, they have to pass the House or Senate and then move to the other chamber uh, by the end of today. So there's a scramble now to get all these bills that don't have like a, a fiscal note, meaning they spend a lot of money or they're not tied to transportation. They have to passed by noon today mm-hmm. and one of those bills <clears throat> is that's in jeopardy because of this cutoff is the police pursuit bill uh, yesterday there was an attempt made by Republicans and this is why I was talking about legislative sausage uh, re- made by Republicans to put the measure on the House floor uh, how the sausage is made is that the, the bill has to go to a rules committee, which is dominated by Democrats, and the Democrats have resisted putting that bill in front of the floor of the House, namely the Speaker of the House. And twice the Republicans have tried to what they're known as pull the bill to the floor. It failed. So what they did last yesterday is uh, Representative Eric um, Robertson, a Republican, made a motion to do so. It's important legislation that deserves the debate of this full House, Madam Speaker. The voices of our communities need to be heard. It's been vetted. I urge a yes vote. But then you have the Democrats. Very short answer to that. Democratic Representative Joe Fitzgibbon is the majority leader in the House. We have an established process by which bills come out of the Rules Committee and onto the second reading calendar. This motion seeks to circumvent that process. So the Democrats are not, they, they don't want the bill changed at all, which means it's stolen, car thieves can drive off scot-free. Basically, uh, they, there's a huge debate among the Democrats to change this bill or keep what's what's in place right now because of that argument that if you allow for more pursuits, more innocent people are going to be killed along the side of the highway and people involved in the pursuits that mm-hmm. are that are in the pursuit maybe die, die as well. And that could be a, a law enforcement official. So, so, but here's the big crux right now. A huge debate going on as we speak to put this measure to the floor of the House today. It's the last attempt uh, to put it in put it in play in the House, and Democrats, a lot of them, don't want it. They don't want any changes, mm-hmm. and the Republicans do. And there's some Democrats who want changes too. Ah, so in other words, the, some Democrats are worried if it comes to the floor, it'll pass. 
Correct. And it's back then. This is about counting votes. This is what yeah. happens. Uh, you know, you don't basically every every vote that's happened in the state and Senate so far, the Democrats, which are in control, have been counting the votes and every bill has passed. There hasn't been one bill uh, on the House or Senate floor that has not passed mm-hmm. because the Democrats are counting the votes. Obviously, the Democrats who don't want to have this bill are counting the votes and they're realizing this is going to be a close one mm-hmm. and they're not putting it in front of the floor. And if the speaker doesn't put it on the floor, then it dies by noon today. So that's where the police pursuit bill is at this moment. I just want to put you back on to the gun bill for a moment. So yep. what is in the current version of the gun bill? There's the there's the required training. Is there a waiting period in that bill? Yes, Yes, there were a lot of amendments to change it. Um, it the, I won't go through all the amendments mm-hmm. right now. Uh, I'm still getting caught up on it because they passed this bill by midnight last night. Um, Is there any kind of a know your customer provision? You know, like, for example, when, when somebody makes a big withdrawal from a bank, they're supposed to know who that customer is. Is there any provision that if somebody either buys a particularly powerful gun or a lot of them, that the gun dealer needs to know who that person is? Uh, it's two at a point. Um, they have to have a background check, and it's not the it's not the gun seller's responsibility to determine whether this is a person who's has too many guns. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be responsible or is not crazy. Yeah, or, and and this is, and again, big thing is that the the you know the it was a federal thing that did the background checks. It's now moving to this Washington State Patrol. This is something brand new. They have to start doing the background checks. For the first time, it's always been the FBI and the federal government that did the background checks. Mm-hmm. And so now we're in this transition period where the background checks are going to be done essentially locally. So you're going to have more of a local decision, a state decision, rather than a federal decision, whether or not this guy has cleared a background check or the buyer has cleared a background check. Okay, the issue of carbon auctions. Yeah, this is, not, this is kind of what I found interesting because, um, and just to explain what's happening in the future, you're going to hear a lot about this. This is this is how the state's going to make billions of dollars uh, to pay for roads and stuff. And they're taxing the big oil and gas companies and other companies that produce CO2 emissions in what's known as cap and trade, which is a carbon emission tax. You're basically uh, forcing these companies to buy at auction air pollution credits. Yeah. And, and that's how they're going to make their money. So they had the first one on February 28th. Uh, they had 608... Six, basically 6 million metric tons of air pollution that was auctioned off. It started the bid in a three-hour auction, started at 20 bucks, and it ended at $48.50 per ton. And, and, and the state basically just made roughly $300 million hmm. off selling air pollution. And they, this is going to go on for years. Uh, and eventually, and here's the idea behind it, if you're buying these air, and they have to buy these things because it's offsetting how much carbon, right. CO2 they're making, you know, producing up at the oil refineries and the gas plants. Um, they have to buy these at auction. And what's going to happen is right now this 1.6, you know, 6 million tons was available things, uh, this last auction. It's going to start going down. Mm-hmm. And as says companies don't reduce the air pollution, the price, so-called the price of the, the, the pollutants, is going to start going gonna up. Go up yeah. yeah. So companies are now like hedging their bet. They're buying a bunch of, of air pollution credits right now so that in the future when it starts dwindling, uh, they have some in their back pocket in case they can't what's so-called decarbonize in the state. 
Wow. And uh, just briefly, any idea how this is going to affect the price of gas? Uh, well, that is a huge question because the, st- the Department of Ecology says it's only going to be about two cents a gallon to start. Mm-hmm. But then you have the Washington Policy Center saying in a couple of years it could be 80 cents additional per gallon. Um, mm-hmm. So that is a gigantic debate and nobody has the answer unless a president of the oil company comes out and says yes i'm adding 10 cents a gallon to the price of gas or people in washington state because of this and we haven't heard anybody say that from the oil company well that's the idea you know to get people driving 55 miles an hour you can save a lot of money yeah yeah well they'll be taxing co2 i mean i breathe out co2 dave yeah well i know well you'll be getting my bill after this piece okay yeah i run a lot so that's a lot of co2 matt markovich thank you matt Your daily dose of kindness now. It's brought to you by Robert W. Baird and Company. An Ontario woman happened to strike up a conversation with a man collecting change outside of a store. Now, he's her employee. It floored me. It just came from the heart with her. And I got to thank her every day. That's Brian Bannister. He's had a tough life. He's overcome addiction, survived abuse. He's lost two wives in his 60 years, one in a car crash, the other to cancer. He found himself living in a shed and collecting change just to get a meal. Well, now he has a guardian angel, Danielle McDuff. She runs a farm in Ontario and needed some help. She tells CTV, Brian's a hard worker. He helps her feed and clean up after her 200 animals. He's just so kind, compassionate. He is amazing with my children, my animals, my staff, and his willingness to help me. With his farm work paycheck, he's been able to get a hotel room, so he's no longer outside. And now he's eyeing a more permanent place near the farm. It is just overwhelming. I can't believe anybody would care that much for me. He has no idea what this has done for me. I've always tried to help when I can, it's, it's not just about the money. Some people need to just talk. And if we could get everybody off the street, ideally, that would be my one wish. But it takes a lot of people to come together. And now, as stories usually go these days, there's a GoFundMe for Brian. It's worth a good chunk of change, nearing $10,000. 48 and now from the G and Ursula show, which starts at nine. Here she is, Ursula Roitine, and the legislature has finally done it. Well, they haven't quite done it, but they passed quite. a bill that would ban single family zoning. So you know what that means? No more single family <laughs> zoning. Da, da, da. Well, it's passed the house. So it's not quite there. But uh, this bill, so you need to be paying attention because it's likely going to affect just about every community. So this would require that cities between 25,000 and 75,000 in population, you you would have to allow at least two units per residential lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, With a population of at least 75,000, you're looking at at least four units per lot and even six units per lot if it is within a half mile walking distance of a major transit stop or a community amenity. Wow. Now, why didn't this pass years ago? Considering that the, the legislature is controlled by Democrats, Democrats are all in favor of having more affordable housing, except if it's on Queen Anne, you know, that kind of thing. So. <laughs> because there are, there's a lot of pushback because a lot of people, a lot of 
property owners think that this would ruin their neighborhoods or would create uh, massive amounts of uh, parking problems, transit problems. We don't have we're, we're, we're not built for it. There's always been a lot of pushback. But with the lack of affordable housing right now and our homelessness crisis, there is a huge push to try to at least increase the supply. And all you need to do is look to the city of Seattle to see where that has already happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you remember it back in 2019? uh, Then Mayor Jenny Durkin uh, uh, reduced the barriers to building Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of these ADUs and backyard cottages, city council as well. Um, And so the Seattle Times just did a story today. And in the past year, last year alone, there were more ADUs built in the city of Seattle than single family homes. A thousand. Well, that's good news, right? Well, for some, I mean, there are people who live in in some of these communities where they're saying this is going to ruin my neighborhood, and what I don't does that want mean, it here. Ruin well because if you have uh, people who are building multiple units per. Uh, lot, you're talking about traffic impacts. You're talking about, um, you know, whether it's well, someone's bl- view is being blocked. Well, sorry about that. And if that. they can <laughs> live near their job, which okay. is Seattle. So, then. so yeah. I wanted to point out that both of you would be affected by this because sure. I looked. Mercer Island mm-hmm. population over 20, just squeaks over at 20,400. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, just, we'll send 401 people to some other community. Kick a few people out, yeah. And then Edmonds For sure. uh, at 42,000. Yeah, Edmonds is the worst when it comes to affordable housing. I mean, I, I know, I I love having my own lot. I love my privacy, I love my property, but I also want my kids mm. to have homes. I barely was able to afford yeah. a home, Well, they're not going right? to take, take your lot away from you. No, 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 they're not going to, but yeah. I welcome, like, if I were to move out and go to a different... Like, bring it in. Or if one of my neighbors were to move out and they leveled the house and built two more, I'd do it because I need to know that the future is bright for our children. I yes. need to know that the American dream is possible for them. And that is the big push. And, and the uh, Democrat who is pushing this in Olympia had said exactly that. Our kids are not never going to be able to afford Millennials to barely can. get into any, exactly, <laughs> yeah. it, get into any neighborhood. But there's a huge amount of pushback. Of course um, there and are. There's a, you know, the well, vast you bring major- up have you Have you seen Mercer Rounds downtown area near the light rail station. They well, it has it. changed. They zoned it for apartments. So they build those five story apartment buildings which don't need elevators, although some of them probably have them, which are uh in another community would probably be affordable, but uh, probably are not on Mercer Island. But at least they've done that. And a lot of places, there's a, a light rail station and nothing there, yeah. which is ridiculous. Linwood's done it, too. Linwood's done a great job adding a Linwood price has. near the new transit but see, center. Yeah. So those are the, the areas where it's near transit. And yeah. a lot of that makes sense for most people. But now mm-hmm. you're talking about... It could be on your street, Colleen. Fine. Uh, where you... Well, exactly. So there are more... It's wonderful that you feel that way, but there are a lot of people who don't. Who are these people? Why, Is it a generational okay, thing? Text us, 888-973-5476, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 888-973. There are people who say it's going to, they worry that it's going to change also their property values. Yeah. Uh, because again, you're looking at more density. Here's my issue though, because I have swung from where I used to be that person like, okay, do I really want four plexes on my street? And uh, No, they're ugly, but whatever. At it least depends people are on housed. who lives in them. 
If you know, if you got bad oh, people, oh no, not the renters thing again. No, oh, but no. I'm saying renters aren't bad people. So, okay, <laughs> boy, you jumped to that. In I know, a wait, wait, because we hear it all the time. Who's moving I into was, my neighborhood? I These arguing, renters. I was arguing from the other point of view. Yeah. If you have good people moving in your community who are, you know, friendly, who gets to decide well who's behaved? Good? What's well behaved? Oh, oh. It's people who, it's people who, see? Okay. it's very easy. It's people who mow their lawns and don't make noise after eight o'clock. That's all. And don't have 20 cars parked lawns on the lawn. are a waste oh, of money and water anyway. So. Uh, oh, yeah. So I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't think that Dave was trying to stereotype uh, renters or anything like that. But here's the issue that I have. So if you look at Seattle, for example, uh, 12% of the ADUs are now being used as Airbnbs. Or they're being permitted as condos and sold separately with the median unit selling for $732,000. That is not affordable. No, we live in a capitalist society, so I'm not surprised that people with yeah. ADUs are taking advantage of the loosey-goosey rules. Yeah. I'm thinking so about renting that's out my, bad behavior, Dave. my garden shed as, a, as an Airbnb. Well, I drove by my old house in Ballard yeah. on 29th Street, and my former neighbor turned their garage into... An accessory really? dwelling unit, yes. Whoa, and they're getting rent from that? <laughs> Presumably. Are those renters well or behaved? Or it's, a, it's yeah. a relative. I hope they are. Everybody should Okay, be I'm out of here. <laughs> Not used to the tense atmosphere of Seattle's Morning News, are you? No, you want to go back I usually to the, get that. That's usually G and myself at nine. Go back to the laid-back atmosphere on the GNRS list. Thanks, Which guys. starts at nine, by the way. Every month, as you know, we talk with Matthew Gardner, chief economist at Windermere Real Estate, and we usually take the opportunity to ask him about the condition of the wider economy, because it's always good to get an expert opinion on that. So here he is. So on the wider economy, um, Amazon is delaying its HQ2 project back east. We still have, I think, our vacancy rate in Seattle is, what is it? Like so north of 20%. 20%, right. Uh, there are going to be, I think, more employers requiring employees to come back to work. But it doesn't look like it's going to be enough to fill. I mean, I, I still see new buildings going up, Matthew. Mm. Well, OK. Uh, on the office side, I mean, certainly Arlington, uh, which is HQ2, uh, I'm sure that the, that the city fathers, there are wringing their hands. I dread to think how much money they've invested uh, in infrastructure, in preparation for Amazon. Now, over here, uh, obviously, I think Schnitzer just topped out one of their towers in Bellevue. The announcement's going to be up within 18 months, I think, or a year. Well, Amazon will be the single largest employer in the city of Bellevue. Ah. So that is going ahead. That, I believe, came out about a week and a half ago. Really? So, that, so those Arlington of offices are going to be in Bellevue? Oh, no, 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 no. Bellevue, they're putting a pause on. They were oh. always going ahead with Bellevue uh, in terms of additional commercial development to move uh, employees into there. Not away from Seattle, just as they grow. The growth is on the east side and not here. So, uh, and so that, uh, they haven't stopped. I mean, certainly they've put a pause in many areas, but as you said, the return to work. Really, this has been a very interesting situation given the fact that companies were going to make those announcements and then the Delta variant of COVID came along and they kicked the can down the road. And then they're going to make the announcements and Omicron came along and so they kicked the can further. So I go over at Disney, said four days a week, end of story, you shall be here much to people's chagrin. Uh, then I believe Starbucks came out with a mm-hmm. minimum three days a week, including a Tuesday and a Wednesday. So I think we're going to hear more and more companies. Uh, and Amazon, I think it was start of May, they're, to- they're talking about making that announcement. That it, it, They do want people back in the office, certainly. 
Uh, are vacancy rates remarkably high? Yes, they are. The advantage here, however, we haven't been building a lot speculatively. So a builder will build an office building if he has an anchor tenant that's going to take half, maybe more of that building or the entire building. So that's good. Uh, because it means we're not still building a whole bunch of what's going to be new empty offices. However, yeah, we've still got downtown, I think it's roughly, what, 140-odd thousand people there during the average day, and it should be 300,000. Mm. So we're still down below 50% yeah. last time I checked. And that's hard for the retail, it's hard for, the, hard yeah. for a lot of different things. However, are we going to come back up? How, are we going to go back to 2019? Five days a week? No. I think that that is gone. I don't ever see that coming Hmm. back. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out over time. Demand for office space or are office tenants and uh, employees going to say, okay, I'll come back in, but... I want more space now, not less. So would you open a new restaurant in downtown Seattle now if you had... I think that would be a very, very tough thing to do if you look at our major restaurateurs. I mean, certainly, Tom Douglas, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, a few have reopened and one new one, but they certainly shut a lot more than it's reopened. Ethan Stoll seems to have a slightly different model. So I think it's, it would be hard. That's too bad. I want to go back to what you said about uh, Amazon being the main employer yeah. of Bellevue in what year? I, I believe it was going to be by the end of next year, by the end of 2024. Wow. And as a as an economist, I'm, I'm curious of your perspective on that. It seems like a very dangerous thing to hang your city's hat on one company. Well, I, I, we've been notorious about doing that for a century yeah. uh, here. So uh, I think, yes, it is. Um, however... We have to run. We can't actually say, no, I'm sorry, we don't want to become all about you because we remember the, the, the dot-com bus in 2000 or, or whatever mm-hmm. that may be. But we have tended to rely on specific industry sectors, certainly, and certainly some companies. Look at Microsoft, Explosive Growth, uh, Amazon when it came off the hill, off Beacon Hill in 2010. Mm-hmm. So we've gone where they go. And that we were doing back Back in the bo- days of Boeing. I, that's been, what I was wondering, if you yeah. could compare that to Boeing and how that went. Yeah, well, the last time we lost population was after the Boeing bus in 72. Yeah. So uh, more people moving away than coming in. Uh, in fact, uh, aerospace employment in our region today is lower than it's been in over a decade. Mm. But are they going away? Well, fingers crossed they're, they're not. But uh, we are not as reliant on them now as we absolutely were back back in those times, pre-1980s, so pre, in essence, pre-Microsoft. So there is a way to sort of back off once you get them in place. I think you can, but you've got to yeah. be very careful. Like I said, if you rely on one particular company, mm-hmm. uh, then absolutely. But thankfully, we, we've got a critical mass here. And so as much as we can see technology slow down employment, and we're certainly seeing that already, layoffs, they're cutting a lot of the fat right now. Here, however, I think we underestimate our, our, our biotechnology bio presence much than anything else. Mm. These are companies, really Fred Hutch, UW, mm-hmm. uh, who are growing office space. I walk past two new buildings walking to my, uh, my office every day, and it's very, very expensive to build them. And so I think we could actually see more job gains in that sector to offset potentially some of the losses that you'll see in uh, the classic technology sector, which has grown by 75% in the last decade. A lot of that, it seems to me, though, medical stuff depends on federal funding, right? We, yes and yes and no. It, it, they are definitely certainly uh, insur- well, certainly federally sponsored insurance for old people, right? I mean, that's yeah. But if you're looking at companies bit. trying to figure out a cure for a form of cancer, uh, the, the issue when you look on the private sector is they are either wealthier than Croesus or, yeah. or they're poorer than a church mouse, and so it depends on those funding lines. Because I mean, creating a new drug is remarkably expensive to do, but we have the people here. Uh, we're not the largest by far. Atlanta's big, Boston's big, San Francisco, but we are the fastest growing biotech sector in the nation right now. I have to ask you again about um, immigration because uh, no progress has been made on some kind of immigration fix. The demographics indicate that unless we get a younger 
physically able working cohort in this country. Nobody's going to take care of me in my old age. So I have a vested interest in uh, figuring out some sort of uh, immigration policy. Me, 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 me. Yep. I know. I, me, my, I, me, my, I, me, my. There's last time I checked, there's about 1.8 million applications of citizenship sat on an office in D.C. right now going nowhere. Uh, and what you said is absolutely right. We these have, are people who want to get in legally. Right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, That's what we're yeah. talking about. Oh, here. no, yeah. That, it's legal. I, the legal stuff we're yes, talking about. Legal. Yeah. And so they do. Uh, and ultimately, if we don't address that, then it, it, we have a big we have a big labor issue today. Uh, COVID came along, a lot, of, a lot of our more mature workers retired, disappeared. A lot of our younger workers didn't know what to do, and they left the workforce. So all of a sudden, we're down at 3.4% unemployment. Uh, companies are, are striving to try and keep the, the good employees they've got, attract new ones. How do you do that? Pay them. So we're seeing wage inflation now north of 6.5%. Is that inflationary? Oh, boy, it is. So we have a big, big issue with the, we're not growing our labor force. That's the only way. We are a nation of immigrants. So therefore, we need to increase it. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And make child care affordable. Oh, that, that's remarkably <laughs> important. We, have, we haven't we, talked about child care we, yet. Yeah, for a while, but, but I think what you're saying is absolutely right. I mean, it does need to be fixed because if not, it's going to be very hard for us to, to grow uh, at our potential uh, as a nation. And uh, I was speaking to a group of a few weeks ago and saying, I believe we will see a recession later on this year. Mild one, but it, it is quite likely. Oh, and it was met by applause. Well, okay, <laughs> what strange world is yeah. it in which I live? And speaking afterwards, these, these guys were telling me, well, yeah, we're trying to get workers to come back to work. And uh, our employees saying, no, you can't make me. Uh-huh. You push too hard. I'm going to leave you. Go down the street, make more money. Now, as the unemployment rate starts to rise, as the economy slows, we're starting to see that now. Shoe moves on to other foot. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the employer says, you're coming back. And the worker says, yes, sir. Yeah, that's uh, right. And then we see that change. So I, I think there's a lot of implications there. But without a doubt, in terms of immigration, we need to fix the policy. We need more people. There's a lot of uh, job. I mean, every unemployed person today could have 1.9 jobs. If you Look take at the, that. Take oh, the, that's just what I want. I've got all another the time po- in the world. Another point nine of a job. Yeah, it's, Side it's hustles. There's 5.2 million more job <laughs> openings in America <sighs> than America unemployed in the country. Windermere Chief Economist Matthew Gardner. Thank you, Matthew. You are always welcome, guys. Take care. So pay attention to that. If you're if you're working from home still, what they're going to try to do is make you feel either so guilty or so threatened by losing your job that you come back to the office. Yeah. That's the message I got there. So you have to make yourself invaluable so that they can't threaten you because you're the that. only one who knows how to do the job, <laughs> right? Well, that's true. Yeah. If you're the one person who knows how the Microsoft operating system actually works, then mm-hmm. I guess you're probably secure no matter where you work. That's right. 849 Seattle's Morning News. A lot of people wonder, why would those four Americans go to Matamoros, Mexico? How weird is that? Well, it turns out it's not weird. Mickey Gomez, who uh, was, of course, on our staff, and you grew up in Texas. Yeah. This is like a... uh, a two-mile trip, you cross the river, and you're, it's like going from, what, West Seattle to South Park, and right. you're there. You exactly. cross the river, and you're there. Yeah, so my family, uh, born and raised in Texas, and we, we like to say that we didn't have to cross a border. A border crossed us. <laughs> yeah. So um, so that's how we became Americans. And so uh, my grandmother would pack us up. Once every three months, we would take a family car ride down to Mexico, and we would cross the border. We, we would stay in Brownsville, and we'd cross the border on over into Matamoros, and uh, uh, we would go see the dentist. Um, we'd get fillings. We'd get our teeth cleaned. Um, my, my grandmother would go see the uh, the spine doctor. Uh, then mm-hmm. we'd go to the pharmacist. And then to end the day, then we would go to the salon and we would get our hair uh, cut or rolled and so set. Just to give us an idea, wh- yeah. how much cheaper is it to get medical care in Metamorphosis? So 
I can remember getting, I, I needed braces and I can remember going down there and needing to have my teeth looked at and x-rayed. And I do remember clearly my mother handing the receptionist a, ten do- a $20 bill and getting $10 back. Oh Whoa. my God. As somebody who For just put braces that. on her mm-hmm. nine-year-old, that sounds awesome. Yeah, well, I didn't get the braces there, but I got the prep work sure, and the films and everything and my teeth cleaned. Ten dollars. Ten American dollars. And is that is that uh, your family's practice or did a lot of people in Brownsville do the same thing? No, or just well, we lived the... in Austin, so okay. it was... Wow, you but, traveled away. Well, we, well, my family is from the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. My, my mother, my grandmother, everyone born in Donna, Texas, mm-hmm. which is just a stone's throw from the Mexican border. And so that's just part of our, uh, well, let's go to Mexico. Oh, I need this. Well, let's go to Mexico. And you saw lots of Americans doing the same thing. It, it, this was a very typical uh, weekend trip that we would take, we would go to the church in San Juan, which was a big, um, I don't know, people would come, and I, I can't even think of the word right now in English what it is, but we would do this mass uh, church thing on Sunday at this big Catholic church, and then we would cross the border into Mexico, and we would spend our day there. Sometimes we'd even stay in a hotel in Mexico. So is it a scary place? Or No, it wasn't scary so at all. it was prosperous then, It's, it was the, very prosperous. Yeah. When it's was little, this, though? So this was 1980. This was, ni- this was late 70s. Then we moved to Germany, then we came back, and then we continued to go to Mexico well into the 90s, and then the cartel took over, uh, Matamoros. And so we stopped going to Matamoros, and I remember seeing on the news going, oh my God, that's the city, and um, oh, we're fine, we're, we're going to go to Reynosa. So then instead of going to Matamoros, we would just go 30 miles down the road to another town, Reynosa. How is it possible that a, a drug cartel, even if they've got guns, can just take over an entire city. I well, don't get it. I, they can. I, I don't know how. When you come in with that much ammunition and, and that many people working with you and... Are they um, paying off the police? I'm sh- I don't... I can't say what they're doing mm-hmm. exactly, but... Uh, it's typically how it happens. Is I, I mean, we see that in the movies, and, right? Yeah, yeah. I've never I've never felt unsafe going to Mexico, even though I, I'm i tall. They would always look at me because I'm, I'm you know, I have European blood. And so my grandmother was was half German and half Mexican. So when I would cross the border, they would always look at me and go, "What are you?" You know, because you're tall. And of course, they're all little little Mayan Mexicans. And so um, beautiful people, beautiful. I love I love my culture, and, but I'm just a taller version of them. And so they would look at me and go, "What are you?" Yeah. And I, well, I'm, I'm I'm a Texan, is what I would say. And so I always felt safe. I feel safe when I travel to. Would Mexico. you go there now? Would I go to Matamoros right now? Like before no. this scary report, but yes. would you have gone? Of course, I have gone. But now that we have this report of cartels taking so, Americans, no. Well, so then, I, well, I don't think I look American. Okay. So I don't, I don't, I don't feel unsafe. Now, I, my wife, maybe not because she's, you know, she's very Anglo looking and doesn't speak Spanish. Uh, we would just go somewhere else. We'd go to Las Flores. We'd go to Reynosa. We would go to another city, maybe perhaps, but uh, we don't feel unsafe. So someone going to Mexico for a tummy tuck or going for uh, tooth work or, you know, the, to see the dentist or to have any kind of surgery or bariatric surgery, very typical, very normal. My family's done it for many years and we've had no issues whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You just do have to heed the warnings. I'm guessing business has fallen off since this, though. Yes, it has, actually. The border <laughs> crossings have declined substantially. Mm. Mickey Gomez. Thank you, Mickey. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.